Welcome back to PS Voice. In today's episode, we sit down with Yanis Varoufakis, the former Greek finance minister and leading negotiator with the European Union during the Greek crisis. This first section is on China's increasing presence in Europe. China's played an increasing role in Greek affairs, I think, in the last couple of years. At the recent Silk Road summit in Beijing, Xi Jinping said China and Greece should expand cooperation in telecoms, energy, infrastructure, uh, and uh, Greece has signed a 3 billion euro deal to cooperate in green energy projects, which you mentioned, and upgrade power plants in Greece. Uh, David, I think you wanted to ask something about uh, the relationship of China with Greece and Southern Europe. The Chinese investment in Southern Europe is making the leaders nervous. It's something that they don't talk about, but when, when you get like out of the spotlight, I mean, it raises concerns. Uh, m- most of all, because leaders, political leaders, business leaders, don't know where, what the nature of that investment is and what the commitment with the economy is. So I, I wanted to get your take. I know there are like uh, conversations going on between like uh, major Greece technology companies and Chinese companies very recent. So so. Uh, what is the quality of this commitment? My experience with, uh, with the Chinese, and I negotiated with them a deal that was uh, monographed but never in the end signed, uh, which would have been absolutely astonishingly good for Greece, tells me that they are immensely self-serving, mm-hmm. as they would, but at the same time they have a quality that we need in Southern Europe. Actually, I think everybody needs to have foreign direct investment by patient investors. They're patient investors. They don't come in to grab an asset uh, for speculative purposes. They come in in order to uh, create a base on which to build and build and build, and their horizon is a 20, 30-year horizon. Do you think this means that we're getting to the point where China is seen in a country like Greece as a more reliable investment partner than the EU itself or than Germany? because of this patient capital on the one hand and the experience of 2010 to 12 on the other hand. Uh, When it came to the port of Piraeus, uh, remember when we were elected, um, unfortunately, my party was against Costco and against uh, the Chinese presence in the port. Not only did they want to cancel further privatization, but they wanted to cancel previous privatization. And the first thing I did was I had a meeting with uh, the Chinese ambassador and I said that this finance minister does not agree with his government on this and I will sway them. And I did sway the the, the cabinet. And we ended up going all the way towards an agreement that not only would privatize the rest of the port, but under terms very different to the ones that Troika wanted us to have. And what I mean by that, minimum investment of 180 million euros within a year which is a very large amount of investment for one year in a, small, in a port. Secondly, uh, labor relations that were not uh, precarious and which, which were not haphazard with collective bargaining agreements uh, to satisfy the trade unions. Uh, on top of that, an agreement that uh, the local uh, coastal um, shipping routes would be handled by the municipality of Piraeus and other municipalities and they would be profit sharing. It's a fantastic deal. So they are very keen to get seriously down to business with you if you are also keen to do this. Now, the aside to this is that this didn't go through because Berlin intervened and sent a message to Beijing 
don't deal with the Greeks, with the Greeks until they sign our MOU. But this oh, is so a sad story. Yeah, that's yeah. a very sad story. A very interesting. <laughs> no, yes. and uh, definitely, um, I totally agree uh, that that uh, Greece should actually get the money from the Chinese or wherever they can get the money from. No, so it's not a question of money. It's a question of it's capital a question of investment. 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 Uh, uh, no, it's not the same thing. We needed the technology as well. This is not just money. Yeah. Uh, no, if I, you throw I, money at Greece, Europe has been throwing money at Greece for many years. What Europe has not done with Greece is to do what the Chinese were prepared to do, to come there with their workers, with their engineers, and actually do some serious work. I mean, to make a fair comparison uh, between China and Europe on the other side, on a political level, uh, you have to say that the patience of the Europeans with the difficulties of, of, of Greek, it's not very short-sighted. So there's a long, we have many, many years uh, have, have patience with this Greek. And there's a, this kind of solidarity which is there, despite of all the problems, which comes from, from Europe. And you, can't, you don't see this on the Chinese level. You don't have, China is not going to commit billions of uh, dollars uh, to uh, um, bail out the Greek state. When you talk about patience with the Greeks, you adopt a paternalistic language which is inimical to the sense of solidarity amongst Europeans. The sense that the, the, the Greeks are the spoiled brats who have been overspending and who are lazy. Um, I, I know lots of Greeks were like that, but I know lots of Germans as well. You know, all the bankers in Frankfurt should have been imprisoned as a result of what they've been doing against your own nation. Do you want us to start talking about our patience with the Frankfurt bankers? We can. But this is toxic discussion. It's about time Europe and Europeans start, well, we turn a page and we address our problems as common problems, not as problems that we, one nation has with another nation. And now we will discuss European politics. In Spain, we seem to have a perpetuity of the right in the government. Like, it doesn't matter how many elections we have, more or less they end up winning and they end up forming a government. And you would think after the crisis and after how the crisis hit Spain, very hard too, like still very high unemployment. Um, I wanted your, your opinion on why is the right still governing in Spain and why a sister party of Syriza has not been able to actually appeal to a wider majority. I'm referring to Podemos. The answer to the question as to why Podemos has reached the ceiling is twofold. One is Europe and the other is Greece. The very close brotherly or sisterly link between Podemos and Syriza, mm -hmm. after the crashing of Syriza in 2015, was a natural um, downer for Podemos. But Europe is also a problem. I think it's a bigger problem, to, to put it very bluntly. Um, I think that the, the average Spaniard who might be interested in voting for Podemos wants Pablo Iglesias and his comrades to answer the question, so what are you going to do in the Eurogroup once you're elected? And I don't think that Podemos have even paid sufficient attention to think about this question, which is exactly the opposite of what we at DiEM25 are doing, which is constantly this question, what should happen at the European level, in the interest not of just of the Spaniards, or the Greeks, or the Germans, but Europeans. Going to the question about uh, the right. The right. Mm -hmm. This is very similar to Greece, as, you're, as you yeah. said. Traditional social democracy saw itself as the arbiter between industrial capital and labor. Their job was to sit around the table, the bargain negotiations table between trade unions and employers, and find some accommodation, facilitate the freedom of the manager, while at the same time safeguarding workers for the rights. And at the same time, taking a chunk of profits 
of surplus value, as we economists say, and use it to fund the welfare state. This is what social yeah. democracy was all about. But with financialization from the beginning of the 1980s, the role of industrial capital has shrunk, and the role of financial capital has increased. And it was happening at the time of deregulation. And suddenly there was this cacophony of money making in the financial sector, and social democratic leaders were lured by this cacophony, and they made a Faustian bargain with financiers. And it was very simple. We will turn a blind eye, let you do whatever you want, and you'll fund us. Us meant fund the welfare state, fund our political parties, our own personal campaigns. So when the financial pyramids that were built as a result of this crashed in 2008, 2009, those social democrats no longer had either the analyt analytical capacity or the moral backbone to pick up the phone and say to the bankers, you know, you're finished. We're going to save your bank, but we're not going to save you. And instead, they, in, they, they started rolling backwards yeah. all protections to, to, to the working class and carrying out austerity on behalf of the, the, the cynical transfer from the books of the banks to the books of the transfer. Yeah. Okay? And, and therefore, they lost all legitimacy. Mm -hmm. And the right was left without contest without opposition. Yeah. I think the left has a more fundamental problem, actually. So if you look at, at Britain, for example, uh, the Brexit vote, you had a lot of Labour voters who actually voted for Brexit and um, casted their vote because they had lost their trust in the elite of London, the elite of government, and it was a, actually a, a Tory government at that time. So it was not this uh, uh, classic uh, uh, clash between a left and right in this case. Uh, same thing in the U.S. You had a kind of a liberal leader with, with Barack Obama, and then you had a lot of blue-collar voters who actually voted right-wing, uh, uh, voted for Donald Trump. So I think that there's a more fundamental question for the European left. Why are most of their supporters or a lot of their supporters actually turned right and not left in the time of need? Well, let's make a sharp distinction between the populist right that... Brexiteers voted for, mm -hmm. and Americans voted for in, in, in the case of Trump, from right-wing governments like the one of the Popular Party, yeah. which is an establishment mm -hmm. party in Spain. They're not the same thing. Yeah, that's so true. passion has returned to politics on the, what I call the militant parochial nativist, nationalist international, <laughs> yeah. uh, who are not the Christian Democrats in Germany, who are not the Popular Party in, 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 in Spain. I know a lot of American, uh, American friends who actually voted for Trump, and I couldn't believe it that they would vote for Trump, and they would say to me things like, well, we just ask ourselves a, a simple question. How can we uh, annoy the establishment that treated us this <laughs> yeah. way yeah. through the ballot box? Mm -hmm. Similarly in Britain. Similarly in Britain. I do not believe that people really care about the European Union so much. Now, now the, the next election that's coming up is the one in Germany. Is that going to turn out to be uh, an exception to this uh, populist tide that we, we've seen sweeping across Europe because we, it looks like the conventional parties are the ones that are going to do well in Germany in one way or another. They'll form a coalition. So is this perhaps the end of a process rather than the beginning of a process? It's neither the end nor the beginning. It, 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 it's a very natural repercussion of two things. Firstly, the massive surpluses that are... Um, Overflowing in Germany, you've got uh, a government in surplus, small surplus, but surplus nevertheless. You have corporations that 
save more than they spend, and you have households that save more than they spend, or that we you know with net savings increasing, uh, and that creates a, a, a semblance of stability. Uh, and I say a semblance because the, the foundation for stability is not there. While at the same time, I think that the political establishment in Germany has a uh, Emmanuel Macron to thank for. Mm-hmm. Because it was his victory that allows Angela Merkel to continue to breathe politically. I think it started before with France, as you just mentioned, because the, the victory of Macron is, uh, was actually the end of this populist wave uh, in Europe uh, so far, I think. And when it comes to Germany, uh, you're right. I mean, the country feels quite well at the moment. There is no mood for change, and there is no uh, personal uh, alternative to Merkel. So uh, people are quite, I wouldn't say happy, but they, they are fine. And if they look around, if they look to Brexit, if they look to Greek, uh, Greece, or if they look to the U.S., they say, okay, we have, compared to that, we are, we are good. So, but the problem is that Macron, who you're right, was uh, was the uh, the firebreak that stopped this, is now collapsing in the polls, and he's losing all his popularity. But you know, uh, Macron is a very interesting case. Celebrating Macron's victory is not sensible at the moment. Why? Not because we didn't want him to win, but he he got 24 percent of the vote in the first round, Mm -hmm. the lowest percentage of any president Mm -hmm. in living memory. Secondly. 12 million people didn't vote in the second round, and 4.6 million people spoiled their ballots. Now to say that, and and 30% voted for Le Pen, for God's sakes. Mm. We should all be mourning. But do you think that Macron, given what he's done, which has been to implement some very conservative policies, very very regressive distributive policies, do you think he's actually a dead duck? I mean, is he going the wrong way? I really hope not. But I fear that um, he has the, ra- the wrong idea uh, about uh, the big game. The big game for Macron is not the labor market. Mm-hmm. He does not believe that the French economy is going to be substantially improved through these labor market reforms. They are too late. So what's the big game? He, his, his game is to, say, to, to, uh, uh, to come to an agreement with Angela Merkel. Mm-hmm. And the agreement that, that Emmanuel wants with Angela is really very simple. I will Germanize two things, the, Germ- the, the, the French budget and the French labor market. Mm-hmm. And I'll do it as a, yeah. as a and show of goodwill first. Mm-hmm. And you will give me a federation light, mm-hmm. which is the, turning the Eurozone into a, a, you know, a kind of you know, minuscule, minimalist federation with a common budget, 1% of euro area GDP, um, some unemployment insurance, a little bit of NFDIC yeah. thrown in there, yeah. you know, federal uh, deposit insurance yeah. for banks. Uh, and, and, and that's his game. And do you but think I very much fear that, yeah, firstly, yeah. Merkel is not going to give him mm-hmm. what he wants. But if he did get what he wants, that, that actually still quite limited deal of concessions from Germany, would that actually help the French economy very much? Would not that make much slightest. difference? Yeah, yeah. It would have helped. It would have been fantastic if we had that in 2000. Yeah, yeah. At the beginning yeah. of the Eurozone. Yeah. Because it would have created checks and balances uh, and macroeconomic stabilizers within. But now it's too little, too late. It will be macroeconomically insignificant. I just wanted to go briefly back into politics to ask you about a fear that is looming in Southern Europe to a right-wing populist movement coming up in Greece or in Spain, Italy, Portugal. We've been safe so far, maybe because of history, but so far, yes. And right now we, we are seeing you know, owing to the Catalan push for independence and like mm-hmm. austerity, we are seeing parts of the country 
you know, looking back to those dark years of like Spanish nationalism. So do you think this is really a threat in South Absolutely. America? Absolutely. In my country, the third largest party is a Nazi party, mm -hmm. not a neo-Nazi party. There's nothing neo about it. It's a Nazi party. They have Hitler and they, they, they salute, you know, Sieg Heil and all that. It's, it's sickening. Uh, but that's not the worst. The worst is that these nationalist, ultra-nationalist, xenophobic, racist agglomerations, take Le Pen, for instance. Le Pen didn't have to win the presidency to um, have her agenda partly adopted by mainstream parties. Torsten, you have a final question. Yes, um, I disagree on you with uh, on the um, French labor market reforms. I think they are still important. We can we can uh, turn the clock back, so we can go back to 2000 and say what we should have done at that time. I think they are still important. They are still uh, worth to pursuing. And I think um, most importantly, and and this might be a lesson for the uh, for the uh, right wing parties in Germany, that Europe was back on the agenda in a positive way. And that helped, and this has a lot to do with, with Macron, and that helped um, Angela Merkel to hold this uh, AfD alternative for Deutschland down to below 10%. I would be happy to see the AfD below 10%. Mm -hmm. And Macron, we, have a, we all have Macron to thank for, uh, for stopping Le Pen. There's no doubt about yeah. it. Uh, but let me say this. Macron has lifted expectations of ending the populist surge on the basis of promises about a kind of federalization of Europe, which is not going to take place because Merkel does not have the mandate within the German polity to give him what he needs in order to fulfill his, his promises. And that is a great danger, not for the long term, but for the medium term. Mm. That's all we have time for. Janis Varoufakis, Torsten Rieker, David Aldente, thank you very much for coming to London for this event. And thank you for watching PS On Air. Thanks for listening to PS Voice. Go beyond the news with Project Syndicate by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and by reading our greatest minds at www.project-syndicate.org. <laughs> <laughs>